On this episode of China Unscripted, the Biden administration faces China challenges. But can it work with America's allies? Will the Chinese Communist Party ever really change? Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganesta. And well, first of all, happy, happy Lunar New Year to all of you kindly folks. This is the year of the metal ox. Ooh, the metal ox. Yeah. Is that like the, like the bull on Wall Street? From a certain point of view. I yes. suppose. Well, so yeah, there's the there's the element cycle that happens with the the zodiac animals. There's there's the wood, metal. I don't know if it's all five or just the four. Shelley, I'm looking. At I think you. it's all five. It's all five. Well, so then yeah, you get all of the elements. That's beautiful. Yeah, and so we're in I the metal so. ox. I'm going to just say that confidently that it's definitely all five. Yes, you heard it from Shelley. So happy Lunar New Year! Uh, it's a it's a wonderful time of year. It's the start of spring. In Chinese thought, uh, in the Communist Party's Spring Festival, it is. But is it really spring? I mean, New York does not feel like spring. Well, it's, that's why it's the start of spring. So rather than like as we do it in the West, that like the uh, the solstices are the start of like summer or spring, doesn't it make more sense that the longest day would be sort of the middle of a season? Traditionally, that was. Yeah. Midsummer or midwinter, right? Exactly. Yeah. And since you're talking about an agrarian society, it makes more sense that that is how you would look at the seasons. So this is why this is the start of spring. So you're saying the equinox is the middle of spring? Or am I saying the solstice? You, solstices are summer and winter. Yeah. And that's the longest day or shortest day yes. of the year. Yeah. So that's sort of like the middle of winter or summer. Mm-hmm. I feel like spring doesn't really start in New York until the weather starts to warm up enough that you can smell the trash. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that's true. Between slush season and trash season is spring. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, yeah. New York is beautiful in the snow for a day, and then it becomes black sludge. I walked outside my apartment today to come to the studio, and like immediately. The snow right outside was just like yellow. Ooh, why yellow? <laughs> From people, you know, their dogs. Dogs, dogs yeah. I suppose. Better dogs than people. Yeah, I mean, in New Dep- York. Depends on the neighborhood. Yeah. So anyway, hey, China unscripted. Oh, yeah, that's oh, right. Yeah. Well, well, we were wishing people happy, happy Lunar New, New Year. Year. Happy on that note. Well, so the big news this week is President Joe Biden has finally had his first phone call with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. In which he wished the Chinese people a happy new year. Just like we started up our podcast. We have so much in common with Joe Biden. We should have him on the show. So we start out the podcast by having a lot in common, wishing each other a happy new year. And then we immediately start talking over each other about issues on which we completely fundamentally disagree. Which is basically what it seems like how the phone call with Biden and Xi Jinping went. It was was very cordial, I'm sure. Oh, it was cordial. You know, all two hours of it. It was two hours long? Yes. Really? That's what Axios was reporting. That's insane. Because, like, if you look at the official... uh, Readout? Readout from, like, like, the White House and from Xinhua. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. Like, what is it? Like, uh, Biden was underscoring concerns about Hong Kong, human rights, Xinjiang, etc. Xinhua was saying that she had said Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Xinjiang are issues that we're not supposed to talk about. Also, to he told the U.S. to act cautiously. Okay, you know, because you have to respect China's, you know, territorial core, sovereignty. No, I think it was core interests. Core interests. Yeah, well, core interests can be defined however they want to define them. Depends on the decade. That's true. How did this conversation last two hours? Well, I mean, Xi Jinping talks really slow, and Biden keeps forgetting what he just said. Ooh. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Too political. <laughs> that wasn't a political comment. It was merely an observation. Anyways, it, it is strange, though, that it uh, took so long for this phone call to happen. Well, I mean, the readout's very general. We don't actually know what specifically they said. No, I just mean like this, that it's how, how many weeks are we into the Biden presidency? Like 
three weeks, four weeks yeah, well, now. Well, well that, I mean, that's why it was such a long phone call, Chris, because you know when like when you don't talk to your friend for a really long time, and then you get on the phone, like you don't want to just wrap up in ten minutes. Like you want to have that longer conversation. I guess the last time they saw each other was during the Obama administration. Probably something like Davos, January twenty seventeen. If if I had to guess. Oh yeah, they oh, probably yeah, they saw each there, other. Yeah. There. Yeah. Obviously, people are trying to figure out how the Biden administration is going to uh, deal with China, particularly coming off the Trump administration. And so there's a lot of different takes on why it took Biden so long to call Xi Jinping. So like some people are saying it's, you know, he's kind of putting Xi in a place where he's like sweating a little bit like, oh, what's Biden going to do? Other people are saying Biden hasn't really figured out his China policy yet. And so some people think this is actually uh, giving the Communist Party an advantage because while Biden's still trying to figure things out, and just, you know, in general, when you're a new president, it takes time to appoint your staff. But while that's going on, China is like very actively trying to win friends and influence people, getting good with U.S. businesses, make the tr- make the, the trade deal with the EU. I mean, but they're just still doing what they were doing before. I think, I mean, if you look back at the Trump administration, I do think that it took a while to solidify exactly what their China Definitely strategy true. was. And the first two years, it was like fairly uneven. I think from a national security standpoint, it was clearer early on. But then because of the trade war and the, mm-hmm. you know, negotiations for a trade deal and all the stuff, like there, it was just like a lot of mixed messages depending on whether uh, it was coming from like the national security side or the State Department versus versus Trump himself. I mean, remember, he went to China maybe a year plus into his presidency mm-hmm. and he was like, they've treated me better than anyone has ever been treated in all of Chinese history. He was the all first Chinese history. He was the first foreign leader to uh, be invited into the Forbidden City. Yeah, uh, but, but no, then they punished think, him by making him that's, watch. That's Peking not opera. what it was. It would think it was like to have like the a, first U.S. president state dinner or something. I'm sure other foreign leaders have there was some kind of caveat but it was still a first i mean anyone can go into the forbidden city if you just pay like 40 yuan or something you gotta go visit the starbucks yeah 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 starbucks but i think um with that you got to remember that the trump administration walked into it with uh there were other more pressing things on the table for instance north korea and if you look back at the early days of the Trump administration it was very focused on dealing with that and to deal with that it seemed like the strategy was to apply some pressure to China to get them to help with bringing uh, North Korea to the table. Because if you remember, after Trump met with Kim Jong-un, like that month, he was like, okay, trade war. Yeah, I don't know if that is everything that was happening, but... That's kind of, that's what I remember my take being at the time. So, So your take is that once he was able to have direct bilateral relations with North Korea without China being a middleman, then he could apply trade pressure. Yeah. I mean, but basically, Trump reaching out to North Korea is what suddenly caused Xi Jinping to start reaching out to Kim Jong-un as well. Because remember, yeah. she didn't uh, like Kim, really, because Kim had... Yeah, Kim never uh, met. They never met Kim and Xi Jinping until that happened. Yeah. So there's a lot of complicated stuff going on during mm-hmm. that time. But yeah, I mean, I think, though, that while I think it's fair to say that the Trump administration came in with more China hawks or people who are friendlier to Taiwan, like the whole getting a call from Tsai Ing-wen mm-hmm. when he, before he took office, like it was clear that he was like going to break from the mold. But, you know, there there was still a lot of that type of Wall Street um, we want to do, yes, what we, like Goldman Sachs, we want to do business in China kind of influence, I think, was tamping down the national security side. Also, remember that there was a lot of uh, people in the State Department, like with Rex Tillerson. Mm -hmm. uh, And that that feels like a long time ago. That was a long time ago now. Yeah. So, you know, it took it took a while to come together. So, I mean, Biden comes in. I don't think he's going to have the staffing issues that Trump did. Where he couldn't find anybody who wanted to work with him. So it's going to be interesting to see, you know, there are some things that they're doing that makes it seem like they're going to try to hit the ground running on China. 
like that Pentagon task force. Yeah, that is that is a good example because, you know, we're, everyone is kind of waiting to see how will the Biden administration handle China. And so this new China Pentagon task force is specifically geared towards working with allies in the, the Pacific to contain. So, so it's, it's definitely obviously the Pentagon. It's more of a military focus than an economic focus. However, it's headed up by uh, Eli Ratner, who, if you remember him, he was when um, Biden was vice president, that was like his deputy national security advisor or some such thing. And like he's had some interesting thoughts on China recently. You know, he's, he said that like to deal with China, we have to forget America first. He said the China challenge right now is about us. It's not about them. It's about our own competitiveness. I think that's a pretty I think that's something that people have been saying for a while. Like, I think that's kind of a you would have heard that during the Obama administration, too. Well, so yeah. that's that's what a lot of people are concerned about, that the Biden administration's China policy will be the Obama administration's China policy. Right. But looking at our own competitiveness, I mean, I think that you can look at it like that. But the problem is that our competitiveness does not exist in isolation from China, because one of the reasons that the U.S. is less competitive than it was, say, 20 years ago is because of our China policy, right? You know, uh, globalization and in China, with China in particular, but not only, is what's hollowed out, for example, US manufacturing, what's driven down the price of goods at the expense of uh, much larger unemployment, especially among lower skilled workers in the US. The US has taken a lot of uh, hit from that. And uh, we've seen increasingly with the technology transfer through uh, what we give Chinese companies and what they steal through hacking and, and whatnot has taken away also a lot of our competitiveness from the technology end. And so having lost an enormous amount of our competitiveness to China over the last two decades since they joined the WTO, like, of course, the U.S. is in a less competitive position. And it is about our own competitiveness. But that should be actually a, a starting point to say, hey, if it's about our own competitiveness, now let's look at how we can address China based on how we've lost our competitiveness over the last two decades. Does, am I making sense? I mean, I understand what you're saying. I think that there's a tendency to look at China issues as like, you're not really, like a lot of people use China as a mirror to the US essentially. Like mm -hmm. like with um, Ratner saying that this is about our own competitiveness or, you know, if, you know, like Thomas Friedman is kind of notorious for doing this, where he, you know, will go to Shanghai and like get in a cab and talk to the taxi driver and then like all of his takeaways from how great uh, China is doing end up really just being about a reflection of how poorly the U.S. is doing in comparison. Mm. Uh, so there's like a lot of this kind of using China as like a way to just like look at us and go, why don't we have more high speed rails and things like that? And I'm not yeah. saying that there's, you know, I'm not saying that like, OK, well, we shouldn't try to be more competitive or do these things. But then what happens also is that you tend to not see China very clearly either because you're just using it as a mirror to reflect your own insecurities. So you're not really seeing the the picture of like what the Chinese Communist Party is actually doing. Yeah. When I look at Amtrak, I feel really insecure. I mean, you should. Yeah. Why? That, that sounded like a setup for something. Well, no, because Amtrak sucks. Like, you know, where's America's high-speed rails? But of course, then you'd have to talk about the, the cost, not just financial cost, but the political cost, the social cost, and so on of doing high-speed rails, which no one discusses. Hey, Elon Musk promised us a Hyperloop. I, I'm very positive about the Hyperloop. I think that's that's a brilliant idea and great technology and low cost, but... He's also trying to get us to Mars, and China just this week became the sixth country in history to get to Mars. Well, that's not a huge accomplishment. Sixth? <laughs> what are you, a Chinese parent? <laughs> oh no look at america they were the first country to get to mars that's right <laughs> it's it's always harder to be the trailblazer yeah um so elon musk wants to go to mars yeah he does but let, let's get back to the biden uh, thing because 
you know, again, we're all trying to figure out where this administration is going to go. And it does seem like the administration has said a lot of they've said a lot of the right things, but we've yet to see any like real policy, real action. It's been like, what, three weeks? Hey, that's enough time to do like, what, 42 executive orders? Oh, well, that's true. But that's easier because, you know, it's it's easier to sign a bunch of things than a lot of those executive orders kind of. Or symbolic. Yeah. We did an episode about that on uh, America Uncovered. Yeah, I mean, it's about setting a tone, Chris. That's true. So I think the the difficulty for the Biden administration when it comes to foreign policy, and especially China in particular, is that they kind of have to agree with the Trump administration on a lot of things, and that is politically difficult for them. Yeah. Well, so that that actually came up to kind of bite them this past week. There was this story going around that, and this this wasn't accurate, that the Biden administration canceled a Trump ban on the Confucius Institute. It wasn't a ban. It was like a requirement yeah. that uh, any like K through 12 or uh, schools or universities that had relationships with the Confucius Institute would have to disclose that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't even it, it was a proposed rule that the, the Trump administration did like in January. Yeah, that didn't hadn't quite taken effect yet, I think. Yeah. And so what happened was. As is kind of typical, the new administration comes in, they just kind of put a pause on all of the last minute proposals of the previous administration. So it was like a blanket freeze. And so part of that blanket freeze was stopping this action on the Confucius Institute. And so then that was being reported by some conservative media as like, oh, look, Biden is uh, doesn't care about Chinese propaganda in our schools. When in reality, the truth was different. But it kind of goes back to what you were saying about how, in many ways, the Trump administration was right on China and Biden politically cannot say, hey, you know, they they, they did a good job. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they're trying to thread like the, this kind of, you know, they were right. We agree with them on the idea, but they did it wrong. Yes. We have to work with our allies. Meanwhile, our allies, Europe made like a trade deal with uh, China that disregards human rights. Well, I think, uh, you know, there are other allies that are like Australia, India, India, Japan, Japan who <laughs> that care a lot. And, you know, they do. Yeah. So it depends which allies we're trying to to uh, make good with. There, there is the risk of, you know, you're not going to really be able to bring all of your allies along. So, I mean, it's know. always complicated when you talk about, you know, working with the allies because like like Trump administration as an example, certainly Trump and Trudeau didn't see eye to eye a lot of times, but Trudeau agreed with Trump on the Keystone Pipeline and Biden scrapped that. So that's like a weird thing of like, oh, well, do you say Biden's not working with the allies? When do you work with allies? Well, well is, is Canada really an ally, Chris? That's a good point. That's a good point. But really, it's like you say, it's a mirror for our own competitiveness. I didn't think I didn't say that. I'm sure you did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think that it's also interesting because things are pretty different now than they were back in 2016 mm-hmm. when it comes to how the world is viewing China. So there's a lot of pressure on the Biden administration to, you know, to be more hawkish on China than maybe some of the people in the administration would have liked to have been. Possibly. And I think... um that was definitely a strategy of the Trump administration, like labeling it uh, what the Chinese Communist Party is doing to the Uyghurs, genocide. That definitely sets the tone for any future conversation about China. China is officially a country committing genocide now. Yeah, yes. and I think that there's been some criticism of the Trump administration doing some of these things about China, like last minute or something like that. Like, why didn't they do it earlier if they were going like the mm-hmm. Confucius Institute thing? There was some criticism going, well, like if it was an important policy, why did they do it before, you know, January, like right before they were getting out of office? But I think that with the genocide thing in particular, there were Trump officials who were saying, you know, we've been working on this for years. We've been trying to figure out how to do this. Uh, and like it's taken time to gather the evidence to put it together. Uh, and, you know, they f- they were kind of rushed at the end because they wanted to get it done before the Biden administration came in. Um, but uh, it's interesting, like, that the perception of it is either, you know, it's last minute because you didn't care about it before or, you know, you know and that's like one reason that like, oh, you know, maybe it's not a good policy versus like you don't see 
exactly what's happening behind the scenes. And I'm sure if the Trump administration thought that they were going to get a second term, they probably did. Which it seemed like they, I think they yeah. were very convinced yes. of that. <laughs> so then, Don't say any more, otherwise we'll be shut down. <laughs> uh, so then, you know, probably like there were some things that they were going to do that were second term things. Like I'm sure that, you know, the relationship between the U.S. and Taiwan would have gone a lot further. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe it still will. I mean, yeah. I, I still believe that one of the most important things the U.S. can do to counter the influence of the Chinese Communist Party is to deepen our relationship with Taiwan. Because even though that's the thing that the Communist Party seems to hate the most, like that actually gives us a tremendous amount of leverage. And I think actually the very first thing Trump did in office, before he even took office, was take the phone call from President Tsai Ing-wen of Taiwan. Like at the time, I wasn't sure whether it was brilliant or stupid, but later I think it was closer to the brilliant side because it basically says that the U.S. is going to play by its own rules and you can't intimidate us. It gives us leverage in everything if Beijing believes that our recognition of Taiwan is on the table at some point. Like they're, they're never going to like it. They're always going to be mad, but it still gives us leverage. I think now is a good time to clarify that the U.S.'s one China policy is different than the Chinese Communist Party's one China principle. Because I think the Biden administration came out uh, recently and said something about reaffirming the U.S.'s one China policy. But mm. the U.S. one China policy is that they we acknowledge that both China and Taiwan, the Republic of China, say that there's only one China and they disagree on which China is the true China. But we don't side with either side, whereas, you know, the one China principle from the Chinese Communist Party is very much like we are the only China, the People's Republic of China. So a lot of people get this mixed up and they a lot of reporters do, too, when they write stories about, you know, Taiwan and China and the U.S. And they say, you know, the U.S. like reaffirms like, uh, you know, the the PRC's one China policy. And that's not what it is. I think it was purposely designed to be confusing. No, I think that it was designed to kind of establish this China policy that's like, okay, well, we have our one China thing and we're going to be over here. But like it gets mixed up. Uh, I don't know if it's the, the Chinese Communist Party specifically trying to confuse people with that. Which or I the think media is, just not getting it wrong, as yeah, you say. That's, I mean, also a lot of reporters, you know, they're not China reporters. They're just reporters and they're sometimes assigned to a China story. And so that's why a lot of the stuff you, you see about China is very surface level or misses a lot of the deeper things or is even factually inaccurate and the reporter is totally unaware because that's not her beat, for example. Her beat. Why did you make that reporter a woman? I don't... Uh, his beat? Their beat? I should have said their beat. <laughs> Anyways, uh, uh, you know, yeah, I did I, think that I, was interesting. I, 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 like, like what, what, like what? I'm just. <laughs> I don't know. Oh no, it's just it's. I mean, it is. It's just it was. The, it's interesting because you know you 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 made it her because hey, you know that's that's like kind of progressive, but she's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Inclusivity backfire. <laughs> um, but Look, it, women can be wrong too. No, you didn't hear that from me. <laughs> um, but hey, like the Biden administration has carried on uh, freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea. There was a, a big one this week with the USS Nimitz and I believe the, the USS Roosevelt. I think I'm getting that right. Um, so that's carrying on. Uh, so, yeah, the freedom of navigation operations, like an instance where like, OK, like, well, obviously. The U.S. is not going to stop freedom of navigation operations. No, but we definitely didn't do that many during the Obama administration. That's true. Right. That's true. It ramped up a lot under the Trump administration. But Biden has just done one, which I think is a really positive sign. I just said that, yes. Okay. I agree with you, Chris. Excellent. Um, this but is not interesting. There's no conflict. Hmm? I said there's no conflict in this I podcast. I completely disagree with you, Chris. You're totally wrong about everything you just said. There we go. But so we get to how Biden has talked about working with allies against China or to contain China, whatever language he uses. But probably not contain, you know, lasso. I don't know. Hunker down on China. 
Okay, this is getting worse. Uh, lasso. Lasso. What? Imagine if Biden had the Wonder Woman lasso of truth. Oh, this isn't going to go anywhere we want to be. <laughs> no, he could. He could get. He could get Xi Jinping to tell the truth. I think it would overload the lasso and it would explode. <laughs> the lasso cannot handle communism. Um, so, anyways, the point I was making. He talks about working with allies to con- uh, to, to to deal with China. But this week, we saw that he has uh, rejoined the UN Human Rights Council. And that, that was the UN Human Rights Council was something that the Trump administration withdrew the U.S. from because the Human Rights Council has like China and Venezuela and Cuba sitting on it. Yes. But like th- there are always terrible countries who do terrible human rights things on the UN Human Rights Council. Yeah. I mean, l- literally the majority of the 200 countries in the world are dictatorships that abuse the rights of their people. Like the f- the free countries are in the minority. So like no surprise there, right? Yeah. Well, so this is where, this is an example of where this, uh, you know, conflict comes from. Because some people, I think Anthony Blinken was like, the US withdrawing from it didn't help the situation, just created a uh, vacuum of American influence in the UN Security Council, sorry, the Human Rights Council. But then you also have people like Senator Marco Rubio saying that like, Rejoining it, putting the U.S. in there gives legitimacy to all of these horrible, horrible dictatorships and their claims about human rights. I mean, the U.N. is already giving them legitimacy by putting them on the Human Rights Council. Yeah. And so this goes back to like, well, is working with international bodies really the way to go? And then doubling down on that, you know, Biden has said the U.S. will not withdraw from the World Health Organization. The Trump administration last year said that they would give it a year and then the U.S. would withdraw. The U.S. is the biggest funder of the World Health Organization. Well, just this week, the World Health Organization came back from its uh, grand tour of uh, Wuhan and the origin of the coronavirus. And you know how that went. Uh, Surprisingly, the investigation team that was led by a guy who has ties with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and has gotten lots of funding to work with the Wuhan Institute of Virology says there's nothing wrong with the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They also praised Chinese officials while saying, you know, there might be some legitimacy to what China is saying about that. Hey, maybe the coronavirus actually came to China through like frozen food, which everybody else has been like, this is ridiculous. Yeah. Scientists outside of China are like, no, I think it's the frozen pig head sent from America to China. Could be that we're sending them frozen pig heads. Probably. That is one of the things they said. It came from like frozen. I don't, I don't know if they were from America, but I would I would assume because, you know, the U.S. military, as we know, was to blame as the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson said. And so the U.S. He military just asked questions, Matt. No, my theory and I stand behind this. The U.S. military had a secret uh, program to put biological weapons in frozen pig heads and send them to China. This sounds inefficient and useless. I believe it. (laughs) Ah, and you have just summarized the internet. Um, But yeah, and then the same team also made a point saying, you know, like, after reaffirming stupid Communist Party propaganda, they were also like, you know, U.S. intel, you really shouldn't listen to it. It can be wrong a lot. Yeah, I just can't believe that. I think a lot of the reporting about the the WHO investigation kind of leaves out the fact that the guy, Peter Daszak. Daszak or something. Or, like who was one of the lead investigators does have a bunch of conflict of interest issues with the mm-hmm. Wuhan Institute of Virology and has been trying to defend them from the beginning, uh, downplaying, uh, you know, like, you know, helping author articles in The Lancet that was, you know, kind of like downplaying like the, the virus to try it. You know, like just like a bunch of... Things that, you know, are great conflict of interest. Yeah. Like and yet he's it's the WHO is fine with him leading their investigation team. And so this is what I'm concerned about. You know, on paper, when Biden says, yes, we should work with international bodies, we should work with their allies against China. Like on paper. Yeah. Being part of the WHO makes sense. But when you see what it does, why should the U.S. be funding that? Can't we just work with the WHO without giving them any money the way that most countries do. Mm. I mean, it's, it's not bad to have some sort of foot in the game where like 
you can have your representative go to meetings and and you know give some kind of input, be aware of what other countries' representatives are saying. Then the largest funder of the WHO would be the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Well, I mean, it's fine to have private individuals fund the WHO if that's what they want to do, but having the U.S. government have like some kind of representation could be an advantage. Now, I don't know, but I, I don't, I don't see why we couldn't be like, oh, well, we'll just, just treat us like that. I mean, the WHO wasn't always like this. Very true. Just like the UN wasn't always as influenced by the Chinese Communist Party as it is now. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was that whole corruption scandal a number of years ago where they were bribing UN officials and, you know, it all came out after one of them died in like a weird freak Oh, that. Yeah. So, you know, the the WHO in 2004 when the, the SARS virus- 2003. 2003 and 2004 when SARS came out that they were very, you know- insistent on investigating to the Chinese Communist Party. They demanded access to the hospital in Beijing that they were trying to kind of keep under wraps that there was a out, second outbreak happening there and all this stuff. So the WHO wasn't always so corrupted by the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. And I think this ties into an important point. Uh, we did an episode this week about the upcoming Olympic Games in Beijing, the Winter Olympics in 2022. Is it already time for another Beijing Olympics? Uh, I know. So right now we're in what's called been called the decade of concern. That's um, Jim Fennell's Jim, Jim Fennell's thing. Uh, and like the reason he calls it that is because it specifically relates to the 2008 Beijing Olympics. The Communist Party saw that you know after the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre, the Communist Party was an international pariah. Twenty years later. World leaders from all over the world came to China and, you know, completely forgot about that. Just was, were bowled over by how great the... Uh, that opening ceremony. That opening ceremony. My gosh. All those drummers. Those yeah. Meanwhile, fireworks. genocide is happening. Yeah. But, uh, uh, and so this is what, so up, we're going to see again how the international community reacts to another Beijing Winter Olympics. Now, I mean, it's the Winter Olympics, so, you know, who wants to actually go see and watch that? But, I, th I think the Chinese Communist Party has been working hard on the curling teams. Ooh, I wouldn't be surprised. They are, actually. I'm serious about that. Yeah, I mean, they want the gold. Uh, but so now, like, it's like, okay, there was a horrible global pandemic that's killed millions because of the Communist Party covering it up. Uh, if in, like, like, a few years after that, they can get world leaders to come and be like, oh, wow. I mean, exactly two years after? Yeah. It, like that'll that that's that's the downside of like this whole like hey let's work with them it's like it's they they know that they can get away with anything and we'll just come back for more. Well, I think a lot of that is not just about governments or government officials. It's just the business communities, like mm -hmm. anybody who wants to make money in China, you know, pushing this whole like well we can look past this or you know. Well, I mean, like. There's like a billion people in China. What if we could sell one of our podcasts to all the Chinese people? We'd make like a billion dollars. Which That's is definitely not how podcasts work. Yes, it is. That's the economics of podcasts. Well, it's a good point of how stupid people are when they talk about the China market. Because are you calling me stupid? No, I'm saying you did a very smart uh, way to demonstrate how stupid other people are. Good job, Matt. Thank you. Go on. So like, yes, there's like, you know, 1.4 billion people, but that's not that's not a China market you can actually leverage. Most of China is desperately poor. Most of China would not be able to afford like an iPhone to listen to our podcast. Well, that's why, you know, you really just need to get the millionaires and billionaires. Did you know that China has more billionaires than any other country in the nation or, or in the world? Yeah. Did we install this with an ejection seat? <laughs> <laughs> or are you going to leave Earth? <laughs> I wish. Go to Mars. Oh, wait, they're there already. There you go. Uh, I guess it's Venus for me. Oh, except... Women are from Venus? Yeah. Mm. That sounds like the place <laughs> I want to go to. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes sense because you would get crushed by the pressure. Oh. <laughs> that was, that was smart. <laughs> wow, bringing back some like high school astronomy, huh? Yeah, or just you know playing Terra Genesis. <laughs> okay.
<laughs> you learn a lot from video games. There you go. I was telling you earlier, I know a lot about Chinese history from uh, Dynasty Warriors, the oh, Three gosh. Kingdoms game. Yeah, like how uh, handsome all of the uh, people in the Three Kingdoms were. Definitely. Speaking yeah. of Three Kingdoms, you know, we have that game that we could, the Three Kingdoms game we could play. Oh, the board game the board that you game. said. Yeah. I have a feeling that one's going to be more complicated than Monopoly Socialism. So. That'll be great. Yeah. Well, spoiler alert, we are thinking about starting a, a, a gaming channel that can include board games. So that sounds good to you. Let us know. Why are you making that face, Shelley? No, nothing. I actually, it was, I was surprised how many people enjoyed the Monopoly Socialism yeah. episode. Yeah, me too. Because definitely during it, I was like, no one's going to watch this. This is, <laughs> this is long. This is boring. I want to leave. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, why? You were winning. Well, that was before I was winning and won. Okay. Yeah. Had I known that. Well, I didn't like the game very much, obviously, because all you did was take advantage and you stole from the community fund to fund your own projects. I think you were the worst for taking from the community. Chase. Uh, you did it first. No, because you went first. No, 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 no. It's, it's my narrative, my history. You did it first. No, 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 no. Stop talking. Stop talking. We're not allowed to talk off the cuff. <laughs> Matt's not allowed to talk no. off the cuff. Uh, I'm, need... I'm, I'm still angry. You know, about like that one game. of those cat misters, like when a cat misbehaves, you like spray him with water. I, it's we not need a... fast enough. No, no, well, I have a button where it's like, pss, 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 and it sprays no, no, on it him. It needs to be like an electric shock. Are you kidding me? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Shelly went there. Wow. Shelly, like, geez. <laughs> Thanks. Sometimes it's justified, Matt. That's. Matt, that that is absolutely ridiculous, Shelley. When are we gonna actually get on this? <laughs> Look, right. it, it when we install your injector seat, we can put something <laughs> in there. <laughs> Which would be better to have an electrocution or an injector seat? Hmm. I don't Why know. not both? Yeah. I mean, if we if, if we're able to run an electrical current to powerful enough to eject a human being out of the chair, surely we can run a little current to like give you a little a little zap. A little nudge. A little nudge. Where are we? We're in New York. Zap. <laughs> <laughs> no, fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. So how are you guys going to celebrate the Lunar New Year? I'm trying not to. I keep wanting to say Chinese New Year, which is technically offensive. So Taiwanese New Year? That's what we should call it. Oh, that violates the U.S. one China principle or rule. Um, yeah. Well, I have an idea. Why don't you guys come to my house and we'll all have Chinese New Year dinner together? You cooking? Uh, I I will make sure there is food there on the table. <laughs> gotta eat an entire fish. Well, you gotta leave some leftovers for tomorrow. Well, no, isn't it like how on on Christmas you go to Chinese food because it's what's open? So on Chinese New Year, we all get steaks because that's what's open. The Chinese houses. restaurants are definitely open. <laughs> I, yeah, that's th true. Th they are actually. I I called one yesterday to make sure they were open. Oh, nice! And they're like, order early because lots of people oh. are going to be ordering. And did you order early? Are we actually doing this? Uh, yeah, let's, let's do it. We'll do it. Wow. I'm, I'm glad I didn't electrocute you. Thank you, Matt. <laughs> All is forgiven. I wish I had ejected you because then there would, because then there would be more Lunar New Year food for Matt and I. There's still time. Editor, eject Shelly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you were going to eject the only Chinese person from the new Lunar New Year celebration? Uh, Lunar New is... Year's is more than just Chinese. It's all okay. of the Asian, Asian Pacific. Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh -huh. So, and uh, what part of the Asian Pacific are you and Matt from? I don't know. I could be any uh -huh. ethnicity okay. or race. Okay. For me, so for me, it's this more is clear. definitely cultural appropriation. Now. Okay. So, so if, if it's if we we need to be at my house, right? And we also can't eject Shelley, then maybe we need to eject Chris. Who would host the show? Who to host the show? Just Shelly and I can eat together. Yeah, oh, you mean true. just for dinner? You can survive the ejection. I was thinking about this very differently. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah, it was a, a one-way ticket sort of thing. Yeah, like it goes up high, and then you okay. fall far. Yeah, you maybe maybe we can't because like I don't. Tunes. You are, are we made out of parachutes, Shelly? On the show? Oh yeah. Okay, you can get an injector seat, but you can't have a parachute. 
But you have to choose what's more important. But but pilot ejector seats, like the pilots are wearing parachutes when they get into the jets. So if Shelly doesn't want to die, she can wear her own parachute when she comes on the show. No, I, I think that's a fair and reasonable request. Right? What is happening now? <laughs> I have no idea. This is the last time we eat lunch before doing a podcast. Yes. Good point. I think we had some very intelligent conversations about the challenges facing the Biden administration in China. But I do think that, you know, it is a little early to judge the Biden administration. Oh, totally, totally. Uh, I mean, they've said mostly, they've said mostly all of the right things. We just need to see action actually followed through. And in many ways, the Trump administration did set up a good precedent, a good um, path forward. Uh, I mean, Biden was calling the uh, persecution of Uyghurs in Xinjiang genocide during his campaign. So, I mean, that's one of those things where it's like, okay, so he agrees with the Trump administration. Well, I do think that this is one of those situations where politically, although it's still kind of awkward for the Biden administration to agree with the Trump administration, mm -hmm. it is less bad on China issues than on something like, for example, like immigration and border control. You know, there are definitely dicier issues politically, because I think, as we've talked about many, many times on the show, it's kind of bipartisan. True. China, issue. China is. Yeah. Yeah. Though... Biden isn't building more cages for kids. He's building overflow facilities for unaccompanied migrant children. All right. Well, now we're going to have to eject you. <laughs> yeah. But, but instead of going down that rabbit hole, I think politically, Joe Biden can basically talk along the lines of what we need to do on China. And I think there's a lot of support from leading Democrats like Nancy Pelosi on China. What has she said recently? Well, no, but I mean, Pelosi for years has taken a policy position, for example, in support of Tibet and support of human rights in China. She alone, as a, as a congressperson, can't do a whole lot, right? Unless you have the whole climate of the thing shift. And what we saw in conjunction with the Trump administration, and in part due to the Trump administration, but in part due to just other things, the whole climate on China has shifted fundamentally. A climate change, if you will. Yes. So in that sense, the Trump administration would agree that it's real. Uh, <laughs> so, but yeah, so so if you look at like at like what, what she wants, and there's there's a number of, of Democratic senators and Congress people also who, for different reasons maybe than Trump, but they're they're very concerned about China issues. So all Biden has to do is use the politically correct language to, to do it. And I think he has a lot of ability to get Congress to act on China in a way that's positive towards human rights, positive towards American values. And uh, I think he's got four years to do this. He's got a lot of opportunity, and I just hope he takes it. You know, I think that's one thing that really the U.S. government should do is talk about American values. And I think the State Department under Trump was doing this a lot uh, with uh, Pompeo. But I think the issue is that, like, when the conversation just becomes about interests, like only about like where we can work together. Uh, and it's not about sort of this absolute materialistic kind of viewpoint. Well, like if they don't, the fact is that the Chinese Communist Party is in an ideological struggle with the U.S. Mm -hmm. But if they can trick us into thinking that they're not in an ideological uh, struggle with us, like if they when talking like on official diplomatic lines. They don't talk about the ideological part of it. And then they can get the U.S. to also not talk about the ideological part of it. Then it's easier for them to to win, essentially. Mm -hmm. Well, which is why I'm really concerned about um, the, the we did an episode about it, the longer telegram. Oh, yeah. The idea that the problem is just Xi Jinping, that it's, it, it's not a fundamental ideological struggle with the free world and the Chinese Communist Party, that if we could just get rid of Xi Jinping, then everything is solved. You know, it's funny because before the longer telegram came out, I remember we were all having a discussion about this idea that maybe like the U.S. government would do this thing where they just focus on Xi Jinping and then kind of ignore the Chinese Communist Party and like, in, an, in an effort to just get Xi out of office and then like everything can go back to normal. And I was like, well, they 
I was like, but it would be pretty hard to do that. And then then like next week, this longer telegram thing comes out, which basically just advises that exact thing. Yeah. Like, okay, let's just get rid of Xi Jinping. And then, you know, a more moderate Chinese Communist Party leader will come into power. And all this kind of like very, you know, it was like talking about some kind of idealized version of the Chinese Communist Party that doesn't actually exist. It never has. But, you know, this idea that like, oh, things were better before Xi. Like there's always been terrible things happening under the Chinese Communist Party. They just hid it better from the West and they weren't ready at the time to really confront the rest of the world. And they're they're ready now. And even if Xi leaves, Mm-hmm. They're not going to stop. And even that is only partially true. Like they have been stealing intellectual property since they joined the WTO. Oh, yeah. No, it's not. It's just it was sneakier or it was less, you know, there were things that like made it less clear to people what and was people happening. People were just stupider. Well, <laughs> they were definitely a bit more blinded by, you know. Yeah, I was like, oh, well, it was it was coming off of the, you know, the end of the Cold War, which wasn't really the end of the Cold War. But like this idea of like, oh, the world's changed. We know we're no longer going to nuke ourselves into nuclear oblivion. I was almost going to say obliviation. <laughs> okay. Nuke I was like, what happened into nuclear there? nuke-hood? <laughs> exactly. Okay. I like obliviation. Okay. We all, we, we, we were safe from obliviation. Okay. The world's going to be better. Uh, China, of course, they're going to be, they're going to fall. The Communist Party is going to fall like the Soviet Union and it will be, you know, uh, it'll become a wonderful liberal democracy. Everything's great. And then... We got Melvind. Melvind? You should watch your Bill and Ted's excellent. No, that was more a bogus journey reference. Okay. Because we did watch Bill and Ted together. Yeah, it was fun. It's like a wedgie, but in reverse. I. You wouldn't understand, Shelley. I guess not. (laughs) Anyway, I think the fundamental misunderstanding that a lot of people have is they look at Xi Jinping as the cause of things, but Xi Jinping is like a symptom and the disease is the Chinese Communist Party and its ideology. If you treat only the symptom, then you're just like completely ignoring the the fundamental disease and you'll never, ever heal from it that way. And I think this is something the Trump administration in the last few years did well, which was just specifically call out the Chinese Communist Party, specifically call out the ideological thing that's going on that they they are in the middle of and it's not that we're starting an ideological struggle with them is that the ccp is doing it and has been doing it for a long time but you know i think this is another one of those things where it could get dicey for the biden administration to carry on that specific thing talking about the chinese communist party i'd like to see them directly call it the communist party no that would be good and i think also because well the thing is then like you kind of have to acknowledge that china is not a normal country which hopefully the genocide marker <clears throat> helps that. Yeah, but I think that like there's a lo- there's a big push now, um, and there has been since the election, to go back to this whole idea of like, well, we can do business with China, you know. Oh yeah, yeah Wall like, Street's always been pushing yeah, that, and uh, just like you see it even even more and more in the media now too, um, mm-hmm. and it's ramped up, and I think that it'll continue to do this like during. Uh, we'll see this a lot until it becomes clear what the Biden administration is going to do because now is the time. And you see this in um, Chinese state-run media too. Mm -hmm. They're really, really pushing hard on things like, you know, there was an article in the Global Times the other day that was like, the the Biden administration's pause on the TikTok and WeChat bans are a sign that China and the U.S. can work together. So just like really trying to use this kind of period of uncertainty Mm -hmm. to push back as much as they can. And this is this is a real danger of our corporate media landscape that most media entities are are owned by like one of five corporations, all of which have major investments in China. And if that influences the reporting, then you're going to see a certain type of reporting. And if that affects politics, that could be really bad for the country. Yeah. And I think it's not just because of that type of reporting. It's also running opinion pieces from hedge fund managers and like just everybody who wants to get back. Even this whole longer telegram thing. If you notice that the Atlantic Council had anonymized it, so they kept the author of an anonymous, but said it was a former government official who, you know, had like extensive experience dealing with China. Um, But notice it didn't say U.S. government official because 
basically mm. the uh, the speculation right now among many China watchers is that the longer telegram was written by Kevin Rudd, the former Australian prime minister uh, who was prime minister during like the Hu Jintao years in China, spoke speaks Mandarin. And so, like, led a lot of this, like, engagement policy stuff between Australia and the Chinese Communist Party. And how that's working out for Australia right now. Not great. But, you know, after Kevin Rudd retired, he started a uh, consultancy where he helps businesses that want to do business with China. So it's working out great for Kevin Rudd, except now with this type of climate change. uh, (laughs) Let's remember that. That's a good one. That... Uh, you know, people are looking at the Chinese Communist Party in a different way. It's, you know, it's harder for for Kevin Rudd's uh, China business. So, you know, he would, I'm not saying Kevin Rudd definitely wrote the longer telegram, uh, but, you know, he would be the type of official who uh, would want to go back to, like, the kinder, gentler Communist Party that he thought was in power when he was, you know, yeah, back when the Communist Party still had more of a use for these kind of useful idiots. Not to the point where it's like, oh, we're done with you. Yeah, well, it's, like I said, it was just, they were hiding a lot more stuff. Uh, but, you know, a lot of people do think that, like, nostalgically, like, a pre-Xi Jinping China was somehow, like, the somehow the Chinese Communist Party was better. Yeah, people tend to romanticize the past. Especially the past in which they p- played a big part. And got lots and lots of money. Yeah, that p- that past was pretty great. No wonder we don't have this problem because that was never in our past. Yeah, I don't know. We, we should have sold out a long time ago. I've tried. Constantly I've said I'm open to it, but nobody... No, you got to make an offer so I can sell out. If the Chinese consulate never approaches you, what can you well, do? You just go to the Chinese consulate. I've heard of people doing that. Like who? Uh, I don't want to say on camera. Okay. Wait, people have gone to the Chinese consulate to try to develop a relationship? I'll tell you after we record this, and then when I explain to you who it is, you'll remember. Got it. Okay. Oh, this is exciting. Sorry, guys. You don't get to hear the the super juicy stuff. We'll save that just for ourselves. Well, I just, you know, don't want to be accused of libel or slander or something. Right. That's a yeah. fair point. Well, I mean, as long as you're not using this anonymous source to make some claim, it's probably okay. Yeah, yes. sure. That's okay. All right. I want to hear this story. So I'm wrapping it up here. <laughs> Thanks for watching China Unscripted. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelly Jung. And I'm Matt Ganesha. We'll talk to you next time. Who is it, Shelly? Shelly.